from World Renew, the Office of Social Justice, and the Center for Public Dialogue of the Christian Reformed Church of North America, this is the Do Justice Podcast. Well, hello, folks. Welcome back to another episode of Do Justice. I'm your host, Chris Orm. And today we're talking about restorative justice and criminal justice reform. And very thankful to have our guest, John Lamsma. And John, if folks are uh, in the orbit of the Christian Reform Church, John, we can say, John, you wrote the book. <laughs> you wrote the manual on on restorative justice and and becoming restorative congregations. Welcome, John. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. John, um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, how how you got started in prison chaplaincy. I know that's your background, but let's set the table. When we're talking about restorative justice, what are we talking about? When you talk about restorative justice, generally speaking, you compare that and contrast that to uh, criminal justice or often retributive justice. And it's the sets of questions that need to be asked or that are asked, uh, criminal justice or retributive justice essentially says, if a crime is committed, what law has been broken, uh, who committed the crime, and if found guilty, what is the sentence? Hmm. And then depending on and where, whether it's a state or federal, uh, you know, what kind of uh, incarceration is going to happen. Restorative justice, on the other hand, uh, asks the first question, if a crime is committed, who is harmed? The next question then is who did the harming? Mm. And then the third question is what is required to repair the harm? Mm. And of course, in a, if a crime is involved, that has to be done in conjunction with courts right. and the legal system. Okay. You know, you cannot do that separate from uh, the legal system. And that often, of course, poses questions, serious questions, because especially in the United States, you know, the uh, over 90% of the uh, crimes that are committed and people that are charged, they plead guilty. Mm. So a very small percentage of them go through the actual trial process and pleading guilty, you know, all of that stuff is doesn't take very long, and it doesn't take up much of the judge's time. Right. Restorative justice, on the other hand, at a minimum, if a judge approves that process, takes several hours. Okay. And not all judges are willing to do that uh, because you know it it often gives the impression that it's soft on crime, hmm. and especially in the U.S. That is not a thing that uh, seems to go over very well. Okay. Um, you know, for example, when I started with the Federal Bureau of Prisons back in 1978, um, we had 23,000 inmates in the federal system. Okay. And in the U.S., unlike Canada, the U.S., uh, a federal crime is uh, just depends on what law is broken. In Canada, you, you're doing time in a federal prison if it's two years or more. Okay. Provincial prisons, if it's two years or less. Okay. And in the federal system, it depends on what what law is broken, and so there's you know you can have short sentences and long sentences in states and the federal system. Okay. And in the federal, when I started in 1978, we had 23,000 inmates in the bureau of prisons. Uh, when I retired in 2003, 
the inmate population had gone up to 157,000. Oh, wow. So a huge increase. And it's gone up to as high as uh, 215,000 or so. And that's just one system now. That's not states. That's that's and one one system. Yeah, just one. And then okay. it's gone down to about 180, 185, somewhere along that line about now, I would guess. So a lot of people get got locked up. It was, in essence, it was punish your way out of the crime system, you know, out of the crime problem. And that obviously did not work. Right. What's the, what's that rate look like in the compared to the, like um, the general population, for instance, the most recent stat I could find in Canada that was that the Canadian incarceration rate for both federal and provincial was around 127 people per 100,000. And I do not know what the federal no. okay. is. For a long time, there were 2.3 million people incarcerated in the United States, wow. which is 25% of all the people that are incarcerated in the world. Right. So it's it's a horrible number, you know, but the, the positive part is I, I'm a member of the American Correctional Association, and I get kind of daily updates as to what's going on. A lot more time and effort is being spent in rehabilitating and, and opening up avenues uh, for inmates to, once they are released, there's more help available than there used to be. Right. So, which is a positive sign, but the numbers are still out of this world, I think. Yeah, it's it's staggering, actually. And it's I think for me, as I sit here and I, you know, I'm a I'm a novice to the topic, but I have I have been interested in it. Um, you know, I I was in seminary for a little while and got involved um, in, in some of this stuff. And, you know, like. I, I remember, you know, Prison Fellowship Canada that, you know, talking of, you know, they talk a lot about restorative justice as well. And, you know, I've heard it explained, like, we're, you know, when, when we're talking about crime and punishment, that's exactly what it is. We're finding the punishment mm -hmm. to fit the crime. And like you said, trying to punish our way out of the, the crime problem. Yeah. But it, restorative justice speaks more to God's shalom, the idea of restoration, you know, and as Christ followers, that should be a super compelling uh, proposition, you know, um, uh, we so would hope that the, it would be. <laughs> yeah, but so much of that, in a, especially in a prison setting, is almost impossible to do. Okay. You know, um, because, you know, ideally in restorative justice is the perpetrator and the victim meet face to face, you know, and very few... <laughs> Uh, offenders want to meet with their victims. Yeah. And so th that is one limit. And in a prison setting itself, uh, you know, very few institutions will allow a victim to directly confront his or her offender. Okay. You know, that's almost impossible. So then what you begin to do is to say, okay, what are some restorative values? that are common to restorative justice, the process, and that are common to restorative practices that you can begin to educate inmates so they can learn to confront their mm -hmm. own behavior, take responsibility for their own behavior, and begin to work towards some form of resolution with himself or herself. Sure. Because often, you know, the part of the, you know, usually part of the uh, issue is that 
offenders may not contact their victims. Mm. So, you know, and so there's all kinds of legal concerns when you try to get a victim and an offender together. Sure. Oftentimes sentences come with a proviso that says you cannot contact. Yes. Yeah. You may not. Yeah. And and that's for the protection of the victim. For sure. Okay, John, like that's a, you've painted a pretty vivid picture here. I appreciate that. And I think we're on board. We're all tracking together with what we're talking about when we're talking about restorative justice. Let's rewind. Let's go back to the beginning. How did you get called into this? When I was in seminary, and I don't know what it is now. When I was in seminary, it was supposed to be a three-year process. And during the two summers in between your first and second and second and third year, you had to have summer assignments to churches. And mine were all in specialized ministries, not in churches. And uh, one of them, uh, I was able to work uh, in what was called the Grand Rapids Youth Ministry at the time, mm. which was, remember now, we're talking 1970. We're talking about the hippies and the flower children and the anti-Vietnam War protesters, you know, and so it's that whole scene uh, with whom we interacted and we had a, a, a drop-in center in Grand Rapids. That building is now as long gone, is gone now, but, um, you know, and then we would visit them in their areas and they would drop, you know, and of course these kids were, downtown kids were in and out of jail all the time. Yeah. And so I would visit them in jail and uh, then really thought, you know, I that, that's kind of a ministry that, that I could, you know, that with some training and some growing up and, and maturing that I could uh, become involved in. Yeah. And then um, I took one summer of clinical training at a federal penitentiary in the state of Washington. Wow. So the United States Penitentiary at Stillicum, Washington. And uh, so that was a 10-week intensive training program, uh, at, and the, the locations varied. This, this one happened to be in a federal penitentiary, and really enjoyed the challenges and opportunities for ministry uh, that were presented to me at that particular time, and felt that, uh, you know, I could do this as a career. Mm. Felt kind of drawn towards that called to, if you will. Uh, and uh, But at the time that I went, you had to have three years in a congregation and a full year of clinical pastoral education before they would endorse you as a chaplain. Mm -hmm. Some of that has changed of necessity, but that's what it was when I was... Uh, so I served the church in Canada, really enjoyed the church, uh, had a wonderful time with them, uh, and... Uh, then went back to the United States, took a full year of CPE, and applied to several different places, had a job offer from the state of Michigan, and then also one from the Federal Bureau of Prisons, and decided to go with the Federal Bureau of Prisons, because I felt that their sense of pastoral care was better than the one in Michigan at the time. So, mm. And I've not regretted it. Right. You know. No, that's course, awesome. There's lots of things that, you know, you're not prepared for. Yeah. All, all the religious programming goes through the chapel, you know, so, and fortunately, when I started, we only had six different faith groups. Okay. So I could take my time learning about, you know, the religious needs of six different faith groups. When I left the institutions back in the last four years, I was an assistant administrator in D.C., but when I left the 
institution in Florence, Colorado, uh, I had 19 different faith groups to deal with. Mm. So it got to be kind of complex, you know, to to ensure that the legitimate practices within the constraints of a correctional environment could be practiced. And, you know, and of course, not all requests were legitimate requests. So I had to do a lot of learning for other faith groups, you know, right. and, uh, and so that was always a, a challenge and a rewarding one for me. What a journey. Holy moly. <laughs> it's, yeah. yeah. So, you know, can I say like, Maybe you were one of the original Jesus people. <laughs> I don't know about that, but, but certainly, um, you know, uh, at the time, I think I was, there were not very many uh, Christian reform ministers in, in uh, as chaplains in state or federal or provincial prisons. Yeah. You know, and there over the years, there have not been very many. Right now, there's about four again, I think. So that's really kind of neat, but we have not had many. Right. Unfortunately, it's such a such a need you know yeah thank you to the mica center for sponsoring this season of do justice the mica center at the king's university helps students and the wider community grow a global vision of justice and renewal through classes workshops internships lectures global learning experience and community initiatives the mica center brings the ancient hebrew prophet micah's call to do justice love mercy, and walk humbly with God to bear on our contemporary world of global hunger, injustice, systemic poverty, war, and violence. We've talked a lot about, um, in this sort of series of, of podcasts, we've talked a lot about uh, living in an era where quick fixes are appealing to our society. We want we want it now. We want it yesterday. We want it fixed. Um, and for those of us who have been on the path with Jesus and in ministry, we know that discipleship and working toward God's shalom requires, we borrowed this phrase from Eugene Peterson, a long obedience yes. in the same direction. So, okay, you've been involved in prison ministry and restorative justice over a 25-year career and beyond. So, what does long obedience in the same direction mean for you? What has it meant for you as you've engaged restorative justice? At its most basic level, providing pastoral care to inmates, and all my institutions were male inmates. Hmm. So if I say he, it's because that's my background, not, not female inmates. Okay. And, uh, and at its most basic level, the provision of pastoral care to inmates is to ease the pain of incarceration. Mm. One of the keys to ministry in a correctional setting is to, to really discover, and I had to do a lot of study and research before and during, and I've done a lot of reflecting after, too, retirement, is uh, to learn to describe the dehumanizing processes that inmates go through. Mm. And there's lots of different ways, a lot of books uh, that deal with that. There were there was one that talks about Irving Goffman talks about total institutions, mm. where and then diff, the definition of a total institution is where a person is controlled almost completely by those who are in charge. You know, in a, in a federal prison, for example, you know the 
society says, you know, you have to account for every single inmate that comes into your institution. Mm -hmm. So if you have 1,250 inmates in one facility, they are very clear on ensuring that there are 1,250 inmates in the facility. So during the weekdays, they count five times a day formally, four o'clock, nine o'clock, midnight, three o'clock, and five in the morning. And, and on the weekends, because there are fewer staff, they add a 10 in the morning count as well. So, you know, everything revolves around the count. Nothing mm. happens during the count until the count is cleared. Mm. And uh, so, you know, and the, the inmates then are supposed to be in a particular place. They are generally in the housing units. Food service inmates are in food service because they have to prepare the meals, you know, and those kinds of things. Other inmates have other jobs and they're counted then wherever they are, but nothing moves until the count is clear. And of course, inmates are provided with clothing, all uniform clothing. They have very, you know, um, few possessions, as you can imagine. You know, every time I moved, I think my the moving truck probably had between 12 and 15,000 pounds, mm. you know. And uh, an inmate, when he comes into an institution, may have two or three boxes. Right. You know, and of course, part of the whole process of, um, you know, there's a, there's a book out that, that was written and it was called uh, The Effects of Incarceration. Uh, and chapter four in that particular book talks about the pain of incarceration mm -hmm. and uh, goes through a whole, whole bunch of them. You know, the pain of uh, being uh, incarcerated, your loss of freedom loss of heterosexual relationships, loss of goods and services, loss of safety, and, you know, and loss of accountability. So there are many of those, and, and every one of those really deals with uh, how dehumanizing a prison is. And mm -hmm. I found two quotes. One of them I found the other day in a book that was called Between the World and Me mm -hmm. by Tanishi Coates. is a letter to his son. And this is what he said, the need to be always on guard was an unmeasured expenditure of energy. The slow siphoning of the essence, really of the nature of a human being. Mm. And when you're in a prison, you're always on guard. Yeah. You know, and so that siphons the essence of who you are. And this one here uh, by a man named Charles Campbell is really the one that sums it up well for me. It says the most common effect of the prison experience is a slow water drip disfigurement of the human spirit. Mm. The greatest tragedy is that those who adjust to it best are damaged most. Mm. And so part of, you know, the process of a chaplain, at least I saw my role, is to ease the pain of incarceration yeah you know so that and, and there are a number of ways to do that one of them is to affirm the fact that inmates are human beings created in god's image mm. and the crime that they did and many of them are heinous you know yeah. you really don't want to know what many of them do to get locked up in prison yeah uh that does not negate the fact that they are still created in god's image right 
And, you know, as such, uh, Lewis Smead says it best, you know, it's the value of persons. Mm. You know, each person is created in God's image and has value simply because he or she exists. And that's what we address. And that's really where restorative values come in, because a big one of restorative values, even, for example, in restorative congregations, is, you know, that you provide respect and dignity to every person in a congregation. That's that's one of the bases of restorative process. Mm. And then the other part is then you begin to identify issues that are not restorative, that that really damage the human spirit, if you will. And, and a number of those, uh, probably the biggest one, uh, it seems to me, would be not guilt so much as shame. Shame is, you know, that sense of, I'm not good enough. You know, uh, all too often, uh, inmates have had horrible backgrounds, you know, lots of abuse, and, you know, really do not feel like they're worth much at all. Yeah. And so then, you know, one of the keys then becomes is regardless of where you are, in God's eyes, you are seen as a person of value, mm. as a person who is created in the image of God, and that is not lost. And then try to work with that. And, and you know, in, in my experience is, of course, I not only dealt with Christian inmates, but I also dealt with inmates of other faith groups. And, you know, and then you, the other faith groups, you really try to say, okay, you know, what, what can you do? How does your particular religious tradition help with increasing and establishing the value of your adherence? Mm -hmm. You know, and of course, for Christian inmates, I had the weekly worship service. I yep. did everything to do in a church, you know. The weekly worship service, uh, lots of uh, volunteers with Bible studies. Uh, mm. And one of the things I always, you know, told them, be respectful. Don't denigrate other faith groups. You know, mm. you can't do that because they may be next door to where you're talking, you know. And and that's disrespecting the value of someone else. Right. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, and then slowly... If you are have enough time, and they didn't always because inmates come and go, yeah. you know, uh, you begin to say, okay, now who are you? You know, what is your life like as a result of what you have done? How can you deal with you know, uh, you know the the term that's come up of late uh, with people coming back from the Iraqi wars? Uh, you know, how can you deal with the moral injury right. that you have experienced? You know, how can you grow through that? Because you cannot do it with a victim. You know, that in, inside a prison, you just can't. Right. There's no way to do that. But you can certainly begin to say, okay, how can you uh, take your the strengths of your faith, my case, the strengths of Christianity, how can you deal with uh, the issues that will break through shame, that will 
also begin to heal that moral injury that you're carrying around and that really hinders and hurts uh, who you are. And, and uh, remember now, you're dealing in, a, in an environment that is continually emphasizing that you're, is a dehumanizing process. Right. You know, so you can never, never leave that. One of the things that I spent a lot of time on um, is that I always felt that the chapel, when it was open, was a place where inmates could let their guards down just a little bit. <laughs> Not much, because that doesn't happen in prison. But that they at least felt comfortable enough to let their guard down because they knew that they were respected. Yeah. They knew that their belief, belief system was respected. Yes. And, you know, and one of the things, uh, obviously, I had lots of volunteers, every place I've gone, up to 150 of them. And uh, as you can imagine, a lot of work, but they could sure do a lot of more work than I could by myself. But one of the things that I always emphasized is you may not manipulate inmates. Mm. You know, not even the noble manipulation of, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, to try to get them to uh commit yeah you know uh trying to say you know you, you need to follow jesus you know essentially it's uh display who you are mm. as a christian and have that speak because that speaks more than your words do yeah i want to i want to take the conversation maybe outside of the prison okay. walls for a second okay because i'm I'm loving this. And I, I think, you know, the way that you talk about the work that you do is super compelling and inspiring. And, and I can see God at work in, in the work that you do. Um, but what do you say to someone who says, you know, John, I, I want to get where you are, but you're talking about easing the pain of incarceration and someone has made a choice in some ways to put themselves there. How, like, what do you say to someone to sort of bring them along the continuum to say, okay, I get what you're saying as far as, you know, the, the punishment mm -hmm. fitting the crime, but how do you move someone to being open to saying, oh yeah, I guess we do need to see everyone as an image bearer of mm -hmm. God. I guess we do need to, you know, bring dignity and, acknowledge the humanity of a person you know yeah. and and in a retributive system that's almost impossible to do yeah you know uh and unfortunately in the christian form church i still think we are more retributivistic than restorative in our outlook mm. and it basically starts with it seems to me who am i in relationship to god mm. you know uh, i'm a sinner you know, and we're talking, you know, to some degree, we're talking degrees of sin. Mm. But by myself, I am alienated from God, and it is only through the grace of God that I can begin to deal with those issues in my life that alienate me from God. Yeah. And uh, when you take it into a correctional setting, you're not only dealing with the alienation from God, you're also dealing with the alienation from society. 
And both of those are there. I'm not, I'm not ever advocating that some people should be locked up. You know, yeah. I'm not saying that at all because, right. but many people are very dangerous and, and incapacitation is certainly necessary for many of them, perhaps mm -hmm. not as many as we've been locking up, but that's another issue, Sure, you know, but, and so the question then becomes is uh, if someone says, you know, I want to punish rather than restore, mm. it comes back to, well, what has God done with us? Mm. <laughs> you know, uh, God restores us. Yeah. That's the whole message of the gospel, it seems to me. Yeah. You know, God restores us. And uh, that takes many different forms. Uh, and mine happens to be in a very small part of the universe called a prison chaplain. Yeah. You know, uh, congregations, you know, the, the question always comes to is what do we do in church that helps us restore one another so the claims of the gospel become real in our lives? Yeah. And, you know, and we... We come at it from, obviously, from many different ways. That's why we have so many different churches, you know. Right. <laughs> and that's why we have so many different serious issues uh, over the years, you know. And the church is facing one now. And the question comes is how can we restoratively deal with issues that are brought before Senate? Right. You know, uh, as women in office was really the big one when I started, you know, goes back to Report 44, 1972 all the way to 1995 and now we have you know the whole gay and lesbian era but the question to me is and that synod did not address it seems to me is how can we deal restoratively lovingly caringly deal with those who are different from us yes and um you know and and that it's hard yeah <laughs> well, there is no, you know, there's there's no, no way around that, and 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 reality sits in, right. And and some people draw the line in a different place than others, and that's just part of who the Christian Reformed Church is. All churches, for that matter, right? Yes. But I can yeah. only speak from my own experience in the Christian Reformed Church. Yeah. And and to, you know, to deal with that, um, I think is the beginning of learning to deal with easing the pain of incarceration okay it's easing the pain of people with whom you have strong disagreements mm. that's the process of restorative congregations you're mm. going to have disagreements you know how can we lovingly agree to disagree right without raising the ire and without splitting and and all of those things uh, it seems to me mm. and, uh, and you know we're not doing very well on the outside it's going to be pretty hard to deal with uh, in a different setting. Let's go back to your work specifically then. And let's end here because, John, you've been doing this for 25 plus years. You don't stay in something for 25 years without having moments of hope and breakthrough and yeah. seeing God doing some amazing stuff. Do you have a story for us of God working in a way that maybe, hey, you didn't expect when you started, but man. At the end of the day, there was no disputing that the Spirit of God was doing something yeah. in the work that you yeah. do. A good example was uh, an inmate who transferred from another, that happens a lot, 
would transfer from one institution to another, especially uh, as crowded as institutions are. You know, if, for example, if if your crime is very serious, you know, you uh, there are five levels, minimum, low, medium, high, and maximum. If you start out at high, that's a penitentiary. Well, it requires more staff per inmate than a minimum security. So as soon as you've shown that you're going to go from, say, high to a medium facility, which is where I work, um, they transfer you down to a less secure facility. Still very secure, but they transfer you. And I had one inmate come uh, through there who, um, in the other institution, uh, just felt horrible what he did. He had kidnapped someone. And, uh, you know, said there were times at night when he couldn't sleep, hmm. you know, and of course you can't cry <laughs> their inmates, that doesn't work, you know, and so he would cry in his bed and, and, and slowly with the care and love of some volunteers, uh, him being open to, um, you know, the reception of the gospel himself, uh, began to change, literally change. And, um, you know, and, and so while he was in the institution, he began to get that sense of, you know, uh, I'm forgiven. Mm. Although, you know, again, he could not deal with the victim. That was just, at, and we're talking in the early 80s. Um, and in fact, he wrote an, an article for the banner. I helped him write an article for the banner, 1981 or 82, I think. Uh, talks called An Inmate Speaks. You might even be able to look that up but yeah we'll try and look that up for sure you know but but he was certainly one of them uh who had done that and and you know it used to be that we wrote letters to parole boards in 1987 in the federal system they did away with parole so did we no longer did that mm. but you know i would always write a recommendation of some kind you know the most basic one of course is inmate so-and-so uh attended services in a particular religion. And I would just report because I did not know the band very well. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, then the next step usually was, uh, you know, he, he is beginning to become effective. He's beginning to take on some sense of leadership position within the inmate organization, religious organization. Mm -hmm. And um, then the next one, would be, and I did not do very many of those, uh, is that the inmate is respected by his peers because his way of life and his belief are coming together. Mm. You know, and uh, and I saw a lot of those. Yeah. Uh, where they were respected by other inmates because their particular belief system had become part of who they were. Now, remember that's always only in an institutional setting. Mm -hmm. How they did after they left the institution, I do not know. Because in the federal system, any inmate can go anywhere in the country right. or other parts of the world even. You know, So I did not often uh, see the results in the community simply because of that. And the other one, uh, there, there is a prohibition of staff getting involved with former inmates mm. because too often it has ended up in staff members being compromised. Right. You know, so uh, there's always some real difficult process. So for me, the, 
the joy was to help inmates begin to live out their faith while they were inside mm. and be respected by their peers. You know, and that is a slow process. Yeah. You know, it's a slow process for us to mature. Yeah. You know, and we don't have near the obstacles facing us than you do inside of an institution. Wow. Well, John, uh, thank you. Thanks for the story. Thank you for the time together. We'll we'll encourage folks to, we'll link a bunch of the resources that you had mentioned okay. in the description for this episode. But where can people go to find out more about the work that you're doing? Almost any, you know, uh, chaplaincy. Contact the Director of Chaplaincy Services, Tim Reedkirk, now. Uh, in the U.S., uh, anyone who's on the Chaplaincy Advisory Committee, uh, if they need to, they can contact me. You know, you can, my my information's in the yearbook, uh, and certainly if someone's interested in, and there's a difference between prison chaplaincy and ministry. Okay. You know, prison ministry generally is people coming in and spending a couple of hours mm-hmm. or sometimes spending a weekend retreat in the prison as opposed to a chaplain who works there full time. Well, John, thanks. And just a reminder for folks, if you've been listening along, our guest today was John Lamsma. He's been doing prison chaplaincy for 25 years, and we're thankful that he's been in that space. John, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me on your podcast. The Do Justice Podcast is produced and edited by World Renew in partnership with the Office of Social Justice and Center for Public Dialogue of the Christian Reform Church of North America. Our opening theme was written by Quetzalcantla. Transitions provided by Valentin Sosnitsky. Until next time, remember that the Lord is righteous, He loves justice, and the upright will see His face.